gonna do what the Spirit says do. I'm gonna do what the Spirit says do. What the Spirit says do, I'm gonna do, oh Lord. I'm gonna do what the Spirit says do. I'm gonna vote when the Spirit says vote. I'm gonna march when the Spirit says march. Today, the legacy of civil rights activist Dorothy Cotton and the Citizen Education Program. She could listen very well to your definition of the problem, but at some point she'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? Why can't you take action about that? And to move people from the sense that you had to wait for somebody important and charismatic to take over and lead you to freedom and to say, no, you have agency, you have power within you to make that change in your own unique way. You have a contribution to make, and you can authorize yourself to take action. We'll hear from Laura Bracca, who helped start the Dorothy Cotton Institute, to take Dorothy Cotton's method for fostering civil rights to inspire and support people who want to foster and protect global human rights. I'm Monica Sandresky, and this is In Between Places. I'm gonna vote cause the spirit says vote. I'm gonna vote cause the spirit says vote. When the spirit says vote, I'm gonna vote, oh Lord. I'm gonna vote cause the spirit says vote. I'll go to jail if the spirit says jail. Dorothy Cotton grew up in Petersburg, Virginia, where black people weren't even allowed to use the public library. She worked her way through college and, as an adult, moved to Atlanta to work alongside Martin Luther King in the freedom movement. She went to Atlanta, and that was the end of that. She stayed for 23 years. <laughs> so she, she really was someone who was carried with this passion to make change Laura Bracca works with the Institute in Ithaca, tasked with carrying on Dorothy Cotton's legacy. As effective a leader as she turned out to be, she really believed in the ability of everyday people, regardless of their education or their status, to take action for change. She found a good fit leading workshops with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's Citizens Education Program. It was basically a freedom school that would last for five days. It was an intensive where people would come from all over the, the South. The program was designed to bring people who were living with some form of oppression. At that point, it would have been racial and economic oppression and who really wanted to make change, and who could uh, perhaps be more effective in how they organized their communities. One of the main things that people needed to organize about was registering to vote, because at that point the voter suppression for black folks in the South was intense and very, very effective. At the time, many states administered ridiculous voting rights tests to suppress the black vote. And through the Citizenship Education Program, confronted what she called American-style apartheid, teaching literacy and education in the rights and responsibilities of being a fully empowered citizen that is, even today, denied to many black and brown people, all in order to bring about the democracy we want to see, even though we don't have it yet. And so they would come, they would definitely get the, the literacy part of the, the training, but the intensive was an immersion for five days into 
building a kind of community of learning that was very powerful. Uh, people would begin by telling their stories of struggle. What was oppression looking like in their lives? How was it affecting them? And they would find that, you know, someone from Alabama had the same issues as someone from Mississippi or someone from Tennessee or Georgia. And so there was a commonality that people began to notice in the stories that they were telling. And so that was a kind of bonding that people had a real common experience of what segregation and Jim Crow was doing to people. But then, around the second or third day, they would begin to get the information about the Constitution. Do you know what the Constitution is? Well, it's the supreme law of the land. Okay, so what's in it? Let's read it. Let's find out what is in the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. And it was sort of a breathtaking experience. Um, Dorothy often quotes one of the participants, a woman who said, the cobwebs began moving from my mind because it was so refreshing to know that there were um, people who had thought through what the rights of a citizen ought to be, that people had fought for that, and that this was something that belonged to them. So by the third day, people were getting an immersion into civil rights and the Constitution. At the same time, they were learning to spell those words and write their names, and so it was a dual, a dual purpose of life skills as well as uh, understanding the laws that would be the basis on which the civil rights movement organizers were able to really use the Constitution as the basis on which to pursue uh, redress of uh, our grievances and get our civil rights really uh, refreshed and codified and respected. Dorothy's aim was to shock people into understanding that they were people who had agency to bring about change. You're frustrated, she'd say. That's real. So what are you going to do about it? In tandem with that, she facilitated popular education, where she recognized people as experts in their own experience. We have knowledge from our lived experience. And if you can get people to talk about what's going on, what is getting in their way, what is limiting their freedom, and have people uncover, sort of unpack, how did that come to be? Those, there were, those barriers were created intentionally. There were decisions that went into the things that are getting in our way, uh, get, that are unjust. How do we understand what those are? And now move from the, 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 the point of view or the, the mindset of being a victim to understanding that you have agency. You are a person with power who can understand the situation and figure out what you want to do about it. How do you want it to be if it's not the way you want it to be? And what can you do to bring that into being? And so by the end of that five days, people understood the principles of nonviolence and how nonviolence could actually be an effective strategy for um, making change without um, as much risk as it would mean if you took up arms against, you know, a police force or the National Guard or whatever. 
how do you create revolutionary change without resorting to force and violence? How do you actually respect the humanity of everybody involved and use a mindset that says we can, if we communicate with each other and we recognize each other's humanity, we can actually change change our minds about who we are as people and we can enroll people in our cause. We can bring people over to being on our side and to moving together. And that's really uh, um, the power of nonviolent direct action because it has a certain kind of moral authority. It's not trying to hurt anybody. It's just trying to have people open their eyes about what's unjust and what would rightness look like and then to peacefully try to get that to happen. But it's persistent, and it's strategic, and it's super effective when it's well-organized and people really know where they're going. These were the seeds to effective community organizing. Black people who participated in the citizenship education program would return to their communities and teach what they had learned to their neighbors and organize them. And they never worked alone. There were always other people in the movement to build you up when you were weary. Bracca says the Dorothy Cotton Institute builds upon these same principles. She sees these strategies expressed today, particularly in Black Lives Matter protests. So there's a history that people can build on. And I would say that the strategies of nonviolent direct action are alive and well in a lot of the movements that we see now. That knowledge, that wisdom has not died. It gets transformed by the times, and the language may change because it has to be contemporary and has to be meaningful to people who are um, able to mobilize and take action today. But in terms of the feel of it, even now, although you will again see masses of people protesting in the streets and facing lines of um, police in, in riot gear, and you see the tear gas being thrown and people getting hauled off to jail, that's the stuff that sells in the media. But behind that, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of community building. There's a lot of um, sitting together to provide a kind of community um, and solidarity that helps people move past their fear. And that's a lot of what the Citizenship Education Program was doing, getting together, talking about your tale of woe, how incompetent the city clerk is, how uh, unjust the system is that you're trying to engage so you can get your vote registered. But moving past that sense of victimhood and just being stuck in the, in the state of mind where you feel like there's nothing you can do, that the oppression is so huge and so pervasive that there is no way to throw it off. And moving people through, through a series of critical questions. This, is, this was Dorothy's art. She could listen very well to your de definition of the problem, but at some point she'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, why can't you take action about that? 
and to move people from the sense that you had to wait for somebody important and charismatic to take over and lead you to freedom and to say, no, you have agency, you have power within you to make that change in your own unique way. You have a contribution to make and you can authorize yourself to take action. We're listening to music from a performance of Ithaca's Dorothy Cotton Jubilee Singers. Song was a signature tool for Dorothy Cotton to motivate activists at workshops. Today, the Dorothy Cotton Institute builds upon these same principles from the Citizenship Education Program, principles which seem especially needed in our current climate, recognizing the dignity and humanity of all people and helping people empower themselves to create our ideal democracy. I think the most effective approaches are those that are grounded in freedom, justice, human dignity, and that when we're striving for those things, we're grounded in a, with a moral compass that actually um, can be sustained and, can, and that can bring us back when we begin to notice that we're being driven by our own rage or our own anger or our own despair. Yeah. Mm. I think that what doesn't work is when we refuse to see the humanity in the people who are our adversaries or who don't understand what it is we're trying to accomplish or don't believe that our cause is just. I think when it, I think it's very easy to then diminish them and not be able to see them as fully human. And I think that's happening a lot these days. It's tempting when people seem to be hugely misinformed and be making judgments and proceeding with tactics as though we're not human. We can see how unjust that is when it's happening to us. And it brings up rage, and it brings up a commitment to fight that, maybe to the death if necessary. I want to protect my people, and I want us to get justice, and I want to get freedom for our folks. When I see people trying to get in the way of that, it's very easy for me to think about the people doing it as in some ways damaged and maybe irretrievable. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't think that's a healthy way of making progress. I, I have to stop myself and examine that. 
because I think ultimately this planet is not going to survive. We as a species are not going to make it if we are not able to recognize our connection as people. And I think that it's the disconnection that we allow to take hold in ourselves that then we use to justify making each other expendable. I don't think the solution lies in making each other expendable. Sometimes we have to apply pressure on people before they will pay attention to what it is we're saying. And I don't think we can allow people to just violate our human rights. There are things that people do, that governments do, that militaries do, that are just wrong and that have to be stopped. But I think that the ways that we see the people can be very blurred and or narrowed in a way that makes us less effective in understanding what we're dealing with and why it's happening. The Dorothy Cotton Institute works with schools to educate young people who may be reluctant to vote about the struggle for voting rights Dorothy Cotton helped lead to advance civic participation for social transformation. And in the legacy of Dorothy Cotton's popular education, the DCI facilitates conversations between activists working on the intersectionality of issues, race and the environment, race and poverty, race and voting, all to talk through strategies they found work best for social transformation. You know, what does it take to sustain this? How do you support yourself? How do you, how do you sustain your energy and take care of yourself? Because as activists, it's so easy to get burned out and to just feel like uh, the, the task is endless and you're never going to see the great outcome in your lifetime. And so the fact that people can sustain their efforts and give each other courage is a really important element of social change that we have to also think about self-care and caring for each other along the way. People don't work isolated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always, yeah, with a support system, with a community of other people who are there to take care of you, who have your best interest mm -hmm. in mind. But and you need that not only because people are, are keeping you company and maybe providing support, you know, love, but also because you need the community of people to give you honest feedback and keep, your, keep whatever it is you're doing in a focused and effective way. It's easy when we're just talking to ourselves to go off on some strange direction that actually is leaving out a chunk of information that if we just asked somebody, we would actually um, know and be able to incorporate into how we're thinking about resolving whatever it is we're trying to work on. So, yeah, company's good. Company is good, and we don't walk this road alone. That is our show for today. The Dorothy Cotton Institute is working on a documentary about the legacy of Dorothy Cotton 
called Move When the Spirit Says Move. And you can help support it. Head to www.dorothycottoninstitute.org. In Between Places is brought to you by the Center for Transformative Action, an affiliate of Cornell University. And if you've got an idea for innovative social change, that's wonderful. We cannot wait to hear from you. Reach out to CTA at centerfortransformativeaction.org. In Between Places is written, edited, and produced by Monica Sandreski. Special thanks to Cornell Media Relations for production assistance. Music today from the Dorothy Cotton Institute and the Dorothy Cotton Jubilee Singers. Thank you, DC. We love you. Thank you so much. God bless.